Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell, and we have a great show today. I'm very excited. Um, our uh, guest today is uh, Emily uh, Anthes. She is the science journalist and editor, and she has a new book uh, that just recently released called The Great Indoors, um, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness. So uh, really, really looking forward to uh, the conversation we're about to have here. Um, we'll, uh, we'll have our Q&A uh, chat line open for all you guys out there. So you'll be able to uh, ask Emily questions in real time and we'll be able to uh, actually entertain those during the show. Um, she's, also, um, she's also the author of uh, Frankenstein's Cat cuddling up to biotech's brave new beasts. And her work has include, uh, included uh, appear, uh, work that's appeared in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Wired, Nature, Slate, Business Week, and elsewhere. And her magazine features have won several uh, journalism awards. So Emily has a master's degree in uh, science writing from MIT and a bachelor's degree in, hi in the history of science uh, and medicine from Yale. So uh, fairly great credentials there. And she's uh, coming to us live from Brooklyn, New York right now. So I'd like to uh, welcome our guest, Emily. How are you? I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So the, the joys of live television. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, I guess we'll um, first off what I'd like to do is uh, get right into it. So your, uh, your book, The Great Indoors, um, I had a chance to read a good portion of it last evening. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. So we're going to get right into the details. What, what prompted you to actually uh, write a book like this? Well, so as you mentioned, I'm a science writer. So I normally spend a lot of time sort of keeping track of um, and reading the scientific literature, new studies that are coming out. Um, and a few years ago, maybe more than a few, five or six, um, I started noticing a lot of studies on what researchers were calling the indoor microbiome. Um, so this was you know, studies where they'd go into homes or hospitals or offices and swab around and then figure out like what microbes, what species were living in our building. Um, and we can talk a bit more about what they found in a minute, um, but what blew me away was how much they were finding that, you know, we normally think of our homes as something that's sort of closed up and sealed up and sort of sterile environments, but they were these incredibly rich environments. Um, and that sort of sparked me to start thinking about our buildings as landscapes and as ecosystems. Um, that tends to be something we associate with the outdoors, but there's this rich world in our buildings that we don't usually appreciate. And so that sort of was a spark for starting to think about the indoor environment in this way. So, so this, uh, this project uh, is not something that you just uh, immediately rolled out. I know it was released last month. Uh, how long have you been working on this? Um, I think I started about five years ago. Um, it wasn't full time, you know, I'm also a freelance writer, so on and off. But I think I first really started putting the pieces together in, in 2015. And uh, the timing is purely coincidental with the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm assuming. It is, though I have had people, one, ask if I have undisclosed psychic abilities. And I've also had people ask what I'm planning to write about next so they can be prepared for whatever the next uh, big global event uh, coming down the pike is. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, has has this pandemic affected, you know, your content since, you know, this was a project you were working on for several years. Um, has, has it changed uh, 
any any parts of your messaging or any parts of your content? I mean, do you think there's a, a different shape or different perspective for the book now based on where, where we are with this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I think there's a slightly different perspective. You know, fortunately, I didn't, there's nothing in the book that's like blatantly contradicted by the pandemic or that the pandemic makes incorrect. Um, but I think what it's doing is highlighting the importance of some of the issues I've talked about, about building healthy indoor environments, about how we can manage threats and crises. Um, and I think it's made people and readers more attuned to and interested in the environments that we're now spending so much time in. So, I mean, are there specific areas that you see that you think would be uh, uh, teachable moments that you know that you share in the book that, that are really applicable to where we stand right now with the pandemic and spending more time maybe in our uh, home environments? Oh well, so I can take the second the home part in a minute. But actually, before okay. you said before you said home, the first thing that came <laughs> to mind was um, I have a, a bit on hospitals and in particular. Um, some researchers who designed a hospital building explicitly for, they wanted to create a building that would help us survive the next pandemic. Uh, they just started designing it in the aftermath of SARS, mm -hmm. and they started creating a, a building for infectious diseases in which patients would be less likely to spread it to other patients and to healthcare workers, because that was something that happened a lot during SARS. And so a lot of the design elements they built in um, are helping them manage this pandemic and I think are lessons for, for hospitals in the future that maybe want to reduce disease transmission. This was the facility in Montreal? No, this oh. was um, this is in Sweden, in Malmo, okay. Sweden. Um, uh, an infectious disease building there that um, has been open since I believe 2012 or 2013. Uh, but SARS was, and the outbreak in Montreal was sort of the spark for it. Got it. Um, I mean, do you think, well, I guess this, this is kind of a far reaching question, but um, do you think that now that we've actually experienced a, a pandemic on this scale in this century, you know, it's been a while, right, since we've had a global pandemic that was, you know, it's you know, Ebola, obviously SARS, but, you know, not, not never even nearly approaching this scale since the uh, Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, do, do you think that's going to change the perspective on how people are designing these types of facilities, these healthcare facilities or areas where we're congregating in mass with people? I do. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be like a sudden break or a radical new direction, uh, but I do think it will accelerate some trends that were sort of already starting to um, percolate through the literature and, and through buildings out there. So, you know, there's been increasing emphasis in the last few years and attention really paid to things like indoor air quality um, and indoor air pollutants and um, designing for like antibiotic resistant bacteria and minimizing that spread. So there, those were things that researchers were like becoming interested in, but I think that will really accelerate those trends. Um, I think it'll also accelerate some technological trends. So, you know, when we think about the future of offices, I think we'll see a lot more like smart thermostats and smart locks and sort of touchless surfaces that again, were out there, but I think their adoption will really be sped up in the aftermath of this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, behavioral stuff uh, in addition to the, uh, you know, the behavioral stuff I think is, is, the low lying fruit, right? You know, individual consumers can change their individual behavior. Um, little more uh, 
difficult for you to change the architectural design of your, you know, your environment. <laughs> yeah, it. though, one of the things I talk about, and it's interesting to think about now, is there's precedent for doing just that. Um, so I talk about in the 19th century, cities in the U.S. were really ravaged by infectious disease. And this was before we had antibiotics and before we had vaccines. And a lot of the solutions to that problem, a lot of what helped us conquer those diseases were infrastructural and architectural changes. Things like, you know, tenement laws that increased ventilation or the construction of sewers or changing of zoning laws. So there's definitely a precedent for that sort of urban planning and architectural change to, to help with disease prevention. Um, it, it, I, you know, I think also the, uh, you know, maybe in recent years, uh, the worldwide adoption of the LEED building standard, mm -hmm. you know, with the U.S. Green Building Council, and then more recently, uh, the, you know, the in International Well uh, Building Institute. Um, do you think, again, more more traction? Do you see that? Do you think that this, uh, an event such as this COVID-19 pandemic, do you think this drives home the importance of our indoor environments a little more to people? Absolutely. And I had a very brief call with some people at the International Well Building Institute um, a few weeks ago, and I think they are getting inundated with requests and interest for, you know, people who maybe might not have thought about how our buildings affect our health now suddenly very interested. And, you know, I think a lot of building operators and owners want to be able to say to people like, look, we've been, we have a certificate of safety or, you know, whatever it is, they want to show occupants that they are taking steps to make those buildings safe. And so I think that's, that's one way that they're doing it. And, and I would assume that's going to actually have a, a big impact maybe in the, in the commercial real estate market as we move mm -hmm. forward. But how do, do you see this trans, translating down to the, uh, the single family residences and, you know, something that's more actionable by consumers to back to the point of homes, you know? Yeah. I mean, so on a, like what we can do now uh, level, I mean, obviously we could think about how we might be designing homes differently in the future. That's sort of a longer timeline, but, you know, I think I'm hearing even just from people at home who aren't architects or designers or engineers wanting to know what they can do. Um, and I think there are a lot of pretty simple steps, you know, everything from opening a window, you know, we know that COVID-19 is a disease primarily that spreads indoors and that any sort of outdoor airflow or ventilation is likely to help dilute and disperse the virus. Um, so whether you have an HVAC system that you can change the settings on to bring in more outdoor air instead of just recirculating the same indoor air, um, that's likely to be helpful as is opening a window. Um, the nice thing about those is they have a bunch of other benefits that aren't COVID-19 related. So like they reduce your exposure to indoor air pollutants and, and other toxins. Um, yeah, and I've, I've been getting questions also about sort of how can we psychologically cope with, with being in our homes. Um, and one interesting thing that I think hasn't gotten a lot of attention is we've talked a lot about how to maintain social ties during this time of social distancing. Um, and that's important. We need our social connections, but mm -hmm. our other sort of innate human need is for privacy and space. Um, and that can be something that's hard to achieve if you live like I do in a one bedroom apartment with another human being and a couple of pets. Um, but 
there's some interesting lessons there from you know other extreme environments like space station um, about ways to try and carve out privacy and a refuge and retreat space. Um, I mean, one thing I tell people, especially those who might not live in a big house with lots of rooms, is that privacy isn't only your own physical space behind a door. So you can have what you think of as like auditory privacy, which means like maybe you and your wife are both in the living room, but you each have headphones on listening to your own podcast. And that can create sort of a, a space of a, a cocooning and a refuge. Yeah, I guess <laughs> it's it's an it's, it's an interesting concept. It, again, I think we're going to be uh, there's going to be changes. I mean, there are there have been changes these last several months. Um, I think have affected all of us, you know, and just how how we are uh, occupying and behaving in our indoor spaces. Uh, you know, so, so back to your you know your your subtitle of the book. Um, you know, surprising science of how buildings shape our behavior, health, and happiness. You know, who's who's your primary audience for this? Uh, for this book? Uh, well, anyone who's interested would be my sort of default uh, response. Um, but I think there are several different types of readers who, who might be really interested. Um, you know, anyone who's interested in, in science and research um, and science nonfiction, this book is for them. Um, this book is also for architects and designers and engineers and people who are involved in creating our built environments. Uh, but then even just the general consumer or anyone who's interested in, you know, how can I have a happier, healthier life and what sorts of tweaks can I make in my own environment, um, we'll find useful things in this book. And, you know, to be clear, I understand that it's not under everyone's control to like draw up the plans of their house. Right. And that's, but there are things we can all do to make our own spaces healthier and, and work better for us, even if we don't have an architecture degree. So, I mean, would you, uh, do you feel that the, um, and this may be not a fair question, but do you feel that, that the architecture, architectural design of a, of a space is more important or equally as important as the behavioral uh, actions of the uh, occupants of the space? Or uh, how, do you, how do you see the interplay there? I mean, I think they're both important. Um, Maybe that's a cop-out answer, but, you know, I, I interviewed some researchers who designed a school, an elementary school, um, using principles of what's known as active design. So the idea is to get kids to be healthier and create environments where they're more physically active and they make healthier food choices. And I thought the way they talked about their job was really interesting. They said, you know, we're designing the hardware, um, the system that this is going to run on. But also really important is the software. So the school's own programs, like if they want to encourage kids to have healthier eating habits, that comes down to like, are they having bake sales or like, what are they putting on the school lunch cafeteria? So I really think those two things, the hardware and the software go together. Um, I mean, the hardware and the architectural design, the building structure, I think can make new things possible, but you still need to pay attention to what the humans are doing inside the building. And that, that's, a, you, you raise an interesting thing there with schools, which uh, coincidentally is uh, our cover story for the July issue of Healthy Indoors Magazine, uh, Getting Back to School. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, do you think there's uh, there's gonna be a, a more of a focus on on space, like spaces like schools, which traditionally are, uh, you know, in environments where they're, they're always trying to budgetarily, you know, 
cut a lot of these features that may, you know, cost a little bit more money. And certainly schools operating budgets ha- have never been on the increase of late. Right. <laughs> you know, so they, they have, they, you know, they seem to have less to work with and are, you know, a lot of the, lot of the uh, country has an aging uh, educational infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. No question about it as far as their facilities. Um, it, you know, the, a lot of studies that indicated that you could improve uh, learning outcomes with a better environment, but how, how do you see that being adapted uh, as we move forward? Well, I mean, I think in terms of the economic piece and, you know, the researcher or the architects I featured in, in my chapter on schools actually worked within the same budget they would have had if they had not been so innovative. So these interventions don't necessarily have to cost a lot of extra money. I mean, obviously, if you have more money to spend, you can do probably cooler things. But um, I mean, some of them are basic decisions like how you orient the building in terms of allowing daylight in and um, you know, how you arrange spaces and their relationship to other spaces, those aren't things that necessarily add costs. So I think there is room for creativity and innovation, even within, um, you know, sort of our, our limited school budgets. I mean, this this whole topic of, you know, reoccupying schools now, right, um, the occupancy in schools is su- super hotly contested. I mean, in the last week in, in the media, that's, that's, you know, one of the lead stories. Um, you know, and again, the school design some of the stuff you discussed there was, was obviously pre uh, COVID-19 mm-hmm. coronavirus um, has, has some of, some of the, uh, the concepts that you laid out or have some of them been kind of uh, made a little bit outdated already, just as, as a result of what we're currently experiencing on, on this scale. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I'd say outdated as much as like, I do think in some of those public spaces, like schools, especially priorities have changed um, for sure. You know, like I still think, there's nothing outdated about wanting to make sure that kids are getting plenty of physical activity. Um, and, you know, that's still a, a public health crisis in the U.S. and other places, but it's certainly less immediate right now. And I would certainly understand if schools are putting less emphasis on that and more emphasis on just making sure that their students can actually get an education without getting the coronavirus. Um, I certainly think some priorities have changed. That said, there are a lot of um, a lot of things that make a good environment make a good environment in lots of different ways. So, like, you might want to think more about ventilation now that we have COVID nineteen, but that's also good for learning and cognitive performance sure. and other things. So, um, it doesn't have to be either or. But I certainly understand why the priority is on the coronavirus right now. Well, I mean, yeah, it is, you know, we're, we're that's the fire we're currently fighting. Right. Um, and, and again, this is, you know, we've been forewarned of this for what, 17 years since the SARS outbreak, right? 16, 17 years ago. Um, and I think we may not have heeded the warnings of many scientists and medical professionals of, you know, the possibility of this exact type scenario playing out globally, you know, and now it has. And, uh, you know, we, we all, you know, over the years, we all heard about the, uh, you know, the Spanish flu and the, uh, you know, how horrid that was, you know, right around World War One. Um, but now we're actually seeing it in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, fortunately, not to the scale that the Spanish flu was with the, uh, you know, fatality rate uh, thus far. So, but knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're also only four months into this, so it, it's, uh, I don't know where this is going. I don't think any of us do, but um, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, 
it, it definitely raises some issues. Like in our in our uh, pre-show when we were, we were speaking about this, you know, do you, do you believe that there's going to be more uh, emphasis on, on the individual basis of what your your home, your living space is? I mean, I, because you may indeed be spending you know, you're spending more time there now, right, with all the shutdowns. But going forward, I think there, there's likely going to be a change in many people's workspaces. Right, we're, we're proving that we can work from home. For a lot of the jobs we do don't require us to be at a commercial office space. We can work as teams via video conferencing. Um, so doesn't that put a little more uh, emphasis on what our home environment's like if we're going to, many of us are going to spend more time at home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think that's something people are interested in um, is creating home environments that are, you know, healthy and comfortable uh, but also, I think you'll see like an increasing premium placed on things like flexibility. Um, so, you know, a home that can easily convert some walk-in closet to an office if the need arises or into an impromptu schoolroom. Um, you know, I think the only <laughs> certain thing about the future is that it's going to be uncertain and we will have more crises, whether it's pandemics or hurricane, you know, all those things. And so I think mm -hmm. creating homes, but also offices and schools that have sort of allow flexibility and use and configuration um, is one of the ways we can prepare for that. Yeah. And you touched on the education side too. Uh, you know, uh, many of the schools, you know, around across the country have been closed for the past several months or closed early in the school year. Uh, now we'd be in summer break, but yeah, will it, will, will there be a change in how we actually do our uh, public education now? Will some of it actually going forward, will we we'll start adopting some uh, virtual classroom environments, you know, or augmenting it, you know, hard to say, right? But that would, you know, certainly come into play for how we configure uh, living home living environments going forward, I would say, right? Yeah, I mean, so one thing, you know, I'm somewhat doubtful that we're going to see like real significant shifts to virtual education, just because mm -hmm. at least right now, like, it's clear that in person is far superior, but I do think, you know, much to the um, dismay of school kids everywhere, we may see the end of like snow days. You know, you can imagine like now that schools are used to doing this for so long, like in the future, you know, we used to get a week off school if there was a big snowstorm. And like, I could certainly imagine going forward that schools will just be like, oh no, we're just gonna have virtual school until yeah, the that's... snow's cloud. Um, I think we will see some stuff like that. Yeah, it, it it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out, and I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, disagree with you that I think in person learning you know offers a value that's really hard to do online. You know, and I'm an online trainer too, so right. <laughs> you know it's like it's like cutting your own throat saying that. But I mean, the reality is there's certain things you just there, there's certain things you can't replicate via a video conference. You can do mm -hmm. a lot of it, but mm -hmm. th there's this interaction that people have when the you know when they're in the present and. Is, I think kind of important. So, um, in your in the introduction of your book, I th this this struck me right in the beginning when I picked up the book yesterday. Um, you talked about the uh, Mataka lofts uh, uh, that designed by uh, was it Arakawa and Jins or Gins. I, I'm not sure yeah. how. They, okay, yeah, and that they took a very profound approach to architecture, right? Kind of disrupting what you would consider the normal indoor space, and their you know intent was to cheat death with the powerful weapon of architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, to to paraphrase what you said there, um, the fact that you you took that and you, you actually let off with that in your book, um, obviously that must have struck you struck a chord with you. Um, 
how, how do you feel about that? Do you really think architecture has the power to, to have such a, a, a formative uh, change? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I picked that as my lead anecdote for a reason, because the idea that sort of architecture could make us immortal is so extreme and so provocative. Um, I mean, I think in partly deliberately so, um, but then what I also think is interesting about it is like, on one level, it, it's clearly nonsense. Like, I, I mean, at least personally, I think it's the idea of immortality caused by anything is, is nonsense, let alone sure. architecture. But it's also interesting because there is, if you dig deep enough, like there is an underlying scientific truth or insight there that they were onto, which is one that architecture can really have a powerful effect on our health throughout our lifespans. But two, there's a substantial amount of research on what's sometimes known as environmental enrichment. Um, and so there's a lot of research to suggest that if we create sort of stimulating, challenging environments, that is good for our bodies and for our brains. Um, and I don't think it's impossible that you could, if you have the right environment, you could start to think about extending lifespans. I think that's within the realm of possibility. So. You know, the example is sort of intentionally a little bit of hyperbole to get people thinking, but I don't think it's as far-fetched as it might seem at sort of first glance. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of the data you cited uh, tends to support that, right? That people uh, in in the urban environments have a tendency to have uh, less issues with, you know, the onset of dementia and things like that, where it seems like they're more... Uh, more brain activity maybe than people that uh, spend their most of their lives in a rural environment with less stimuli. Yeah. Uh, and one of the really interesting things is that if you think about like our convention for designing like assisted living or senior facilities is usually they are sort of the opposite of stimulating and, you know, they're bland and they're white and everything's safe. And like, I don't mean to discredit safety, like physical safety is important. Um, but some of the researchers I talked to said like, maybe we should be thinking about ways to create sort of more engaging, slightly challenging environments, you know, not that are going to like put anyone's safety at risk, but, um, sure. you know, just making it this very easy beige place is, is maybe not great for people. Yeah. Not, not maybe, maybe to the extent that Arakawa was doing, you know, with, right. the, you know, <laughs> radical lines where you literally could become disoriented. Right. Yes. Probably not a good idea. No, um, I mean, but, I don't think that would be good for anyone, frankly. But you know, that, that raises an interesting point though, because again, your, your environment and, and your, your, your actual environment, uh, environmental surroundings, uh, do in the indoors, especially seem to have an effect on just your whole state of mind. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. people, and in a crowd, crowded, cramped environment, like even even I would say even if you had equal air quality in spaces, the the, the ergonomics, the lighting, mm -hmm. the sound, you know, the, all those other factors. Like we tend, you know, I, I come from the IQ world. We tend to talk in terms of indoor air quality, but really it's more of an indoor environmental quality that we're, you know, coming up with a healthier indoor environment. Right? That's that's the concern. Yeah. Well, I mean, every aspect you mentioned, and basically every aspect you can think of has its own effects and they do interact in some interesting ways. You know, I talk about some research where, um, you know, scientists basically used office workers as guinea pigs while they like changed, you know, the lighting and the noise and the air temperature. Um, and they found that in certain conditions, um, the subjects complained more about the air quality, but that wasn't something they were changing. So like when they made the office darker and colder, 
people had a lot more complaints about just like the quality of the air. Mm -hmm. And so I think our impressions of certain aspects of the environment can sort of color our view of the quality of the whole environment. Um, but all of those aspects play a role in sort of how, how we function inside spaces. Well, the, the Harvard Syracuse University studies, uh, you know, that, that came out uh, a few years back, you know, actually pushed some of that threshold. A lot of it was ventilation based, mm -hmm. you know, certainly, you know, it was the cognitive uh, effect of, car you know, elevated carbon dioxide in the indoor environment. But they, they actually pushed other parameters in that study, mm -hmm. too, and, and looked at it. That was that, a lot of that research was actually done here in Syracuse, which is interesting. There's the Syracuse Center of Excellence is a research facility just down the street from us yes. where, where they do some very innovative things. Um, I think this is interesting because you you picked, you know, there were several anecdotes that you picked uh, for creating this book, uh, various stories that became the stories within your story. Uh, but out of those stories, you know, what indoor story affected you the most in writing this book? And tell me a little more about that. Like what, what really, you know, you were dealing with this for several years, putting this book together. Um, what really uh, got your attention and really uh, triggered you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, there are a couple of stories that stick with me. Um, you know, one is I have a chapter on prison design and um, sort of, I look at both the bad and the potentially good. Um, so I spent some time corresponding with men who had been in solitary confinement, um, in some cases for years or even decades. Um, and hearing their stories that in case we were, these were letters, but like seeing them write about and hearing their stories about how being confined to this extremely barren, hostile space for years on end, um, that sticks with me. I mean, that's something that like you can't help but being, uh, be affected by, um, and sort of on the flip side, I, I investigated like whether it's possible to design a humane prison like is that is that an oxymoron and like what would that look like or how could we improve prison design and I got to tour um uh, it was a not a prison it was a jail in California um a women's detention facility that was really rethinking a lot of the sort of conventional wisdom around correctional facility design so it was actually designed by a firm that had never done a correctional facility before they were known for school and college architecture. And so they designed something that looks a lot like a college campus. And, you know, there's security around the perimeter, but the women there like have freedom of movement. They can go from their dorm to the cafeteria, to the classroom building. Um, and so the idea of sort of rethinking some of those assumptions, um, I thought was really interesting as well. Well, that, that's an approach, you know, I've read some uh, articles uh, based on some of the Scandinavian yes. prison facilities, right, where, and you, you look at the photos from them, and the, the insides of some of these facilities, even their, I guess would be almost deemed their maximum security, mm -hmm. look more like, you're right, like a, like a, like a single uh, studio apartment. I mean, they're not, not fancy, they're Spartan, but, but they're, you know, they're not putting people in a eight by, uh, you know, an eight by six concrete uh, bunker. Right. You know, and the, the logic, I remember, I remember reading an interview uh, from one of the wardens at this facility, and I think some some U.S. journalist commented that, oh, this is almost like, a, you know, like a uh, 
a recreational facility. You know, this is almost like a vacation home. And, and his answer really struck me that is like, no, you know, honestly, our goal here is not to be punitive. Our goal here is to try to, you know, reintroduce these people when their time is over back into society as productive citizens, not to turn them into animals. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's what, you know, the saying that a lot of people in that field um, have and tell me is, you know, we send people to prison as punishment, not for punishment, that like the loss of freedom is the punishment that we shouldn't pile on top of that, these incredibly hostile, punitive environments. Um, and, you know, you're right, a lot, this started in Scandinavia, and it's much more common there than here. Um, so one of the things I was looking at is like, could this kind of approach ever work in the US, which has this like, carceral industry right um yeah i mean and, yeah know, we that, have for-profit the whole for-profit prison prison system doesn't really encourage them to start building uh nice uh, nicer facilities you know if anything they're de-incentivized to do that probably right mm. that, that that that's its own topic that we'll, yes. we'll, 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 we won't broach <laughs> it we'll let, we'll let it roll we'll let it roll from there um you know you, you refer to yourself more than once in the book as an indoorsy person you know what does that mean to you and and how has this book changed your own indoor spaces you know and, and as a follow-up to that do you have friends and family now asking you for advice on indoor air quality indoor environmental topics um, I do. And so indoorsy is something that, you know, I kind of say is a joke, but it's one of those jokes that is also, you know, has the benefit of having some truth to it. And um, I don't mean that, like, I don't like nature. I love nature. I, you know, as I say, like, I've gone camping and hiking, but like, if you ask me what I want to do on a weekend, it's often not like, go, go out on some hike somewhere or go kayaking or something. It's like, I want to sit in a comfy chair and read like that, that's just the personality I've always had um, in terms of my own indoor space um, you know I'm somewhat limited in how much I can change as a renter um, but one thing I've definitely done is bring in a lot of plants um, you know bringing nature into our indoor spaces is one of the interventions that there is the most research support for it just has benefits on almost every aspect of our functioning and so probably have a couple dozen houseplants now um and i did not when when i started this book that's interesting we had a guest on several weeks back uh, uh barun uh, argawal uh from uh, new delhi uh in india and uh he his uh he and his father-in-law uh, were involved in the first i believe lead platinum building in new delhi and, and i may have gotten that wrong it might have been gold but i, I think it was platinum and uh they you know, they have to deal with horrendous outside air. You know, so the U.S. paradigm is always, well, you need more fresh air, right, to make mm -hmm. the indoor environment better. But when you're in an environment like New Delhi or, you know, uh, maybe in, in uh, you know, Beijing, you know, places where the outdoor uh, PM 2.5 counts are, are horrific, you know, 100 times higher, 1,000 times higher than we experience here, um, outdoor air is not really a solution. So what, what they did that was very innovative is they took the top floor of their building and actually made the whole thing a greenhouse. And it's part of the air system. So they literally bring their, their air from their, you know, from the outdoor air through this greenhouse system to reduce carbon dioxide levels and then through uh, filtration as well to get particulate out of the air. So, that, but they're using, uh, I believe, nearly 10,000 plants 
in one, one little thing for this building. Yeah. And so, yeah. so the concept of, you know, they're using plants on ster- steroids though. Their whole, right. you know, they're, they're actually, they don't have them in soil. They have them in such a way that the root structure can also uh, adsorb or absorb, uh, you know, gas, gaseous mm-hmm. contaminants and they're making it very effective. Uh, but is, is it more than just uh, the effect? You know, I, I, obviously there's some beneficial effect that plants can have on, on, on the air in a space, but isn't it, isn't it also a psychological effect for the occupant? Oh yeah, it's um, there's a lot of research on. Um, so just to run through a few, like exposure to nature in some way um, reduces stress, anxiety, and pain. Uh, it improves attention and focus. Um, there are some really compelling studies out of Japan that shows that it actually boosts the immune system, and you can see that in like counts of white blood cells. Um, so it has a lot of benefits even beyond air quality. Now, I mean, there's certainly uh, the the flip side of that, right? Is that potentially when you you bring plants and soil and you water the soil, um, you potentially have microbial considerations, right? Potentially, yes. There there can be a downside. You know, you potentially have a lot of parasitic fungi on the, you know on the so- plant soil and. So. Yeah, though I, I guess I'll say that not all plant, in fact, lots of plant and soil associated microbes are totally benign and some may even be beneficial. So, you know, more microbes isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a question of, of which microbes. Yeah, I think it's probably, uh, you know, companies that are involved in the the other uh, solutions that probably f- uh, fly, the, you know, fly the uh, negatives about having plants indoors. Personally, I, I love the, the concept of a living wall in a commercial mm-hmm. space. And seeing yeah. that, I just think it looks great. Um, which, which I guess, let, let's get back to your, your your first chapter of your book. Started talking about microbes in the indoor environment, and uh, that seemed like it, was that was that up in the front of the book for a reason. You know, you 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 begin the book by going into your shower and pulling off your shower head. Yeah, it is in the beginning of the book for a reason, and because sort of one of the arguments that I'm making with this book is that there's so much more happening in our buildings and in our indoor spaces than we typically appreciate or that we can even necessarily see. And I thought that microbes were the most sort of obvious example of that. Um, You know, we think of our homes as separate from the outdoors, but lots of outdoor microbes get in them, lots of other microbes get in them. It's just sort of a, a case study in how rich and complex our indoor environments are. Um, so that was sort of what I was hoping to illustrate with that chapter. So there, uh, you were referencing, um, you know, in the book, you referenced uh, both the, uh, the microbiome research and uh, also, I, I believe, HomeChem, which were uh, funded by the Sloan Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you have an, you had an opportunity, obviously, to speak with some of the, the research, uh, researchers involved with that, right? Um, and so, so one of the things that I, I've always brought up in this industry that I think has always been a problem is that there seems to be very good research going on. So th- these studies, you know, these programs that Sloan Institute uh, did, both the microbiome and the, uh, the uh, home chem, I, I think are revolutionary. It's great information, but it's, again, at the research side. And how does that get to the practitioner level? And then how does that from the practitioner actually get to the general public? Like, does this become actionable or is this, does this intel just stay in the academia realm? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And, you know, in some ways, a lot of these studies that represent enormous progress, because I think for a long time, it was just sort of 
conventional wisdom, tradition, best practice, like there wasn't really rigorous research at all about what our indoor ecosystems look like, what our indoor chemical exposures look like. And so the first thing you need to do before you can even get to recommendations and solutions is say like, well, what is the status quo? Like what is happening in our homes? Um, and that is, you know, sort of unfortunately the phase a lot of the research is in right now, it's still, we're starting to just move past that where it's documenting like what are all the processes that are happening in our homes. The next step is, as you say, to start trying, you know, tweaks or interventions, or if we do this, how does that affect our chemical exposures or how does that affect our indoor microbiome? And we don't have a lot of clear answers to that yet, but I mean, the research is happening, so it is moving in that direction. But I think researchers are saying that before they could even get to that phase, you just need sort of like these, some of these baseline studies to figure out what's actually happening. But so ultimately, though, what, what do you think is, uh, you know, more um, going to have more impact on the, cons you know, a general consumer's health, you know, and their happiness? Is, is it the research, the science side of it, or is it the actual practice side? You know, how, how do you, what do you, how do you, how do you see this playing out? Because I mean, research is all well and good, but it, it, if it doesn't actually create a change for the end user, has yeah, it achieved anything? Though, I mean, I guess I would say that you, there is no practical side without the research, or I mean, there is, but it's not, it needs to be based on evidence, right? So, I mean, it, sure. it takes both. Um, and absolutely, we need like the practical recommendations and solutions for consumers, but they have to be based on evidence. Like, I think we're, there are way too many scenarios already where you see all sorts of products being sold. And, you know, I've, some people have coined the term now, like Corona washing, you know, things right. that are promised to have all these benefits, but they're really not proven. So I'm with you on the need to translate it to mm -hmm. actionable information, but we have to start with the basic research. Okay. Now, I, I, I can, I can concede that it, it was interesting. Uh, a few years back when, before we were doing the show as a weekly live stream, uh, we had the opportunity to go down to that home chem uh, research pro uh, program at the university of uh, Texas, Austin. Um, Dr. Rich Corsi was there at the time and uh, doctors Marina Vance and uh, Delphine farmer. And I had the opportunity to, uh, uh, interview all of those uh, individuals there, you know, during the program and see what they were doing. And one of the things that struck me is they had, they had done the, uh, a test. It was, it was, a, it was a, for those of you out in the audience who aren't familiar with it, um, it was a, a research house, a small ranch house with just literally millions of dollars of test equipment. And what they were doing is testing how the actions of individuals in their indoor space and in their indoor living space would actually affect their indoor environments. Um, and uh, they, they did a thing where they simulated cooking a Thanksgiving dinner, which you, you, you vaguely referenced in your book. Um, I, I got to see some of, some of the actual data from that and it was uh, startling <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I mean, and that's the kind of thing that um, sort of I was just referencing where, you know, I think we all, or there was a general sense that like cooking and cleaning could produce air pollutants, but this was one of the first projects to really rigorously quantify that. And, um, you know, so that's the kind of like very basic research that they're doing. And it's a fascinating, fascinating study. So you mentioned that, you know, the uh, concerns for using antimicrobial products in the indoor environment. Um, elaborate on that a little bit. I'd like, like to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, so here I'm talking mostly about sort of what you might think of as added antimicrobials. So not, you know, we know that things like 
soap and water or, you know, sunlight can sometimes kill microbes. And I'm talking more about like chemical additives, like triclosan is a common one. Um, and I think people would be startled or some people would be startled to know how pervasive they've become in the built environment. I mean, they are added to so many consumer products now, ones you might expect like, you know, hand soaps and cleaning products, but also like furniture, you, you see like textiles and materials and floor coverings that are impregnated with these chemicals. Um, and they, I think, can have a couple of negative consequences. So one is there is now some research to suggest that they might be um, helping sort of spur the emergence of antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, there's some interesting work that's been done showing that like homes that have higher levels of triclosan have anti or have bacteria with um, higher proportions of, of genes that are known to confer resistance to antibiotics. Um, but then the other thing is that, you know, most of the microbes in our home are benign and some are actually beneficial. And so it's sort of this like crop duster approach to just killing all the microbes, which you don't really want that, you know, you definitely want to target pathogens, but you don't want to wipe out um, all the good microbes that might be hanging around. Well, I mean, that's that comes even into play for, you know, now with uh, the pandemic, uh, I find myself using hand sanitizer a lot. I mm -hmm. really have never been a proponent of that because right. the those things out of whack. I mean, you, you're killing you're killing bacterium and you're typically not killing fungal spores when you're, when you're using hand sanitizer. So you, I think you potentially open yourself up to, you know, yeast infections and all kinds of stuff by, you know, constantly hitting yourself with hand sanitizer to, in this case, now deal with a virus and, you know, more, more readily kill bacteria, right? But not, they're not so great against uh, fungi. Uh, so that, and again, it's a matter of balance, right? You're getting back to talking in terms of microbiome and, you know, the balance that, it, that on a mi uh, microscopic level, the balance of the environment. Right. And, um, you know, there, I, I do think it's fair to say that like the risk benefit calculus has shifted slightly right now, like for sure, like- Well, majorly, I think, yeah, more like, than slightly. I, I totally- yeah understand why, you know, people might be disinfecting more than normal. And, you know, maybe there's the, the benefits right now outweigh the risks. But I do think it is worth thinking, you know, the coronavirus is also a virus, not a bacteria. Um, and do we really need to have all these chemicals just added to our products by default? Um, I think there's a real reason to rethink that. Well, I mean, you look at an, an enveloped uh, virus, you know, you seems like it seems like with a surfactant, right? A soap detergent uh, is pretty effective at rendering it, uh, you know, incapable of uh, infecting you. So that's the you, other thing is, you know, do, like, I mean, do you actually do you actually need some high end uh, uh, sanitizer, or is it just you know really just vigorous cleaning with soap and water? Yeah, I mean, and then there are other, you know, things like bleach are, which some people are using more of, like can have all sorts of effects on air quality and irritate the lungs. And like, we just don't need it. Like soap and water, fortunately for this virus really does enough. Um, and so clean all you want, but do it with soap and water is sort of what I, I would recommend to people. Yeah, I definitely concur with that. Uh, we, in my own home, uh, got away from using most commercial cleaners a lot, you know, several years back, like five, six years now, we're pretty much just dealing with using water, using vinegar, mm -hmm. um, using essential oils, 
you know, and that's pretty much, you know, pretty much everything, uh, you know, got away from the real heavy bathroom cleaners and, you know, the, the spray, uh, spray uh, surface, supposed disinfecting uh, type products. And, uh, you know, I have noticed that our home seems cleaner or at least equally as clean as it was with all those commercially available uh, heavy chemical laden products. And uh, the, the difference is now I feel very, uh, I can't stand being in heavy fragrance or heavy chemicals. Mm. If I walk into, I had a commercial client that was just got done doing commercial bathroom cleaning. I had to go in there and we were looking at a, a possible mold issue in the bathroom and I couldn't breathe in the space because they had used some commercial cleaners in there. And it was just like, uh, what is, and that's, well, that's the cleaner we use every day. I'm like, yikes. It's like, people are breathing that stuff. It's like, you're getting rid of bacteria and you're filling their lungs with chemicals. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I get migraines and those kinds of scents are like a major trigger for that for me. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think some of those chemicals absolutely have a purpose. Like bleach is an incredibly effective disinfectant. And there are times, especially like in medical environments where it's useful. Against some think, organisms. But I think we overuse <laughs> it for sure and use it in lots of scenarios. We don't need it. Yeah. I mean, sodium hypochlorite is, is quite effective against bacteria, not bad against viruses, not great against fungal spores. It's, it's really not, you know, when you're dealing with mold and, uh, you know, various fungi, it's, it's really not a great solution. You know, and it's, it's certainly not a safe solution. You know, the quantities and the strength and concentration you have to use. It, it, again, it's, it, I, I think there's been this mindset of everybody equates all the microbes and, uh, you know, to be treated the same way. You know, we're going to just take you know, this whole nuke approach of going in and blasting the environment. And uh, one thing I did, you know, I did get from your book and especially in that first chapter is that it, we're out of balance. Mm -hmm. A lot of what we're doing is we have environmentally, right. Uh, you know, the micro environments out of balance and probably our, you know, our macro environment is too. Yeah. I mean, and I do think that's slowly beginning to change. Like I think you've seen like, you know, the human microbiome, the microbes that live in and on our body, I think there's been a real shift where the general public, a lot of people now understand that, like, we don't want to be microbe free. I mean, we would die if we were microbe free. Right. And you see interest in things like probiotics and healthy mm -hmm. balance. Um, and the same is true for our homes. So, you know, maybe the public awareness of that isn't quite there yet. But I do think that is beginning to shift. And hopefully people are starting to appreciate why microbial diversity and, and richness is really critical to our health. But, I mean, do you see potentially this COVID-19 pandemic is almost being a knee-jerk reaction to that? Because now people are like on the other side of the spectrum. So, oh, we, you know, we have to we have to kill all these microbes because they're killing us, you know? I do think that could be a setback. Um, you know, again, I'm sympathetic and like I understand why people want to err on the side of yeah. eradication right now. But, you know, I've done some other interviews and written some pieces about microbes over the last month or two. And people are like, this is not what I need right now. And, and I get it. Um, but you know, I, I, w I would warn us not to overcorrect, I guess. I mean, do you think that people, you know, in general now, you know, again, as in response to COVID, do you think people are going to make more uh, inexpensive, maybe temporary fixes to their indoor spaces uh, to deal with the virus until a vaccine's developed? Or are they going to, do you think people are going to make permanent changes and, and start to, you know, maybe adopt uh, uh, permanent permanent practices and, uh, and structural changes to, ha to how they live in the indoor environments. How do you, how do you read that? I mean, I guess the, the jury's still out. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to think that there'll be some permanent changes and I suspect there might be, um, it's hard to predict what those are. Um, 
I guess also though, you know, I recognize that the truth about human nature is when like certain threats or events are really prominent and really in our view, um, we tend to adapt to them and then forget quickly uh, when the moment has passed. Um, I mean, I think we'll probably see some of both, but sorry about that siren. It's a, it's a live show and we're, we're in our real environments. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's hard to say. Um, I think that, you know, there might be some structural changes or like long-term changes. Like if people reconfigure HVAC systems or install mm -hmm. air filters, like that will sort of naturally last. Um, but, you know, whether everyone will keep washing their hands for 20 seconds, I, I sort of doubt. I think people are already, that time is slipping, um, but we'll see, I guess. Well, we do, as as a society, you know, as a whole, I think we uh, we do have a short attention span, you know, yes. um, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, we're get, getting towards time here, but what, one point I did want to bring up, uh, you know, a running theme throughout your book is, is how poor people are underserved in the housing community. Right. And how uh, how that changes their behavior, their health, their happiness. And you, you've said, uh, you know, or you do say in the book that the burden of the bad indoor environments falls mainly on the poor. Um, you know, in, the, in our last issue of the magazine, that was actually our cover story in June, uh, talking about uh, racism uh, and, and its effect potentially on the indoor environments. Yeah, I mean, do you think I mean, do you I guess what do you think science can do to help resolve this problem? Or is this clearly just still a p political issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's less a scientific issue than a question of values. Um, and, you know, one of the themes is the, of the book is that what we design and what we build is a reflection of our values, of who we value, of what we value. Um, so we know enough to design safe indoor environments. You know, we know, we've known for a long time how toxic lead is, but that didn't, you know, help the residents of Flint very much. And so it's a question of really the political will and saying as a society, like, we don't accept this and we are gonna make changes, whether they're, you know, zoning changes or federal standards or whatever they are in making sure that everyone has access to a, a safe and healthy environment. And you're seeing that play out again uh, with the pandemic, where if you look at, you know, where the big hotspots have been and the super spreader events, they're in meatpacking plants, which are occupied primarily by like low income immigrant workers, they're in right. prisons, which are occupied primarily by people of color. Like they're in these environments that are occupied by people that we don't tend to value or that society tends not to value as much. Yeah. That's not an accident. No, it, it really isn't. We, we had uh, we had a show dedicated to that three weeks back where we, we talked about uh, the housing and it was it, it was focused on sustainability, but still talking about some of the, uh, you know, racial justice involved with, you know, what's going on with uh, those different types of sectors. Right. And just the terminology, what was brought up, one of the uh, our my co-host who's usually here, Joe Medosh, uh, asked the question of the term housing versus home. Mm. And we use the term housing to, de to define the places where we put the undervalued people in our society or the underserved people, underserved communities, right? It's housing. Yeah, that's, I hadn't you know. thought about that. But that yeah, I, I didn't either. I was yeah. blindsided by that live. You know, I was like, because, yeah. you know, define the two. What, what do the two mean? And I went, wow, you use that term housing when you're talking about Section 8 housing, when you're talking about, right. you know, uh, and it's, 
I, I think it's it's almost a, a marginalized term to use, you know, because it's like we, it, right? Yeah, I mean, it has certainly has different connotations than home. It kind of does, and you know, and I, I think until such time as we actually start trying to get everyone in a home, you know, and, and have that have that be a uh, you know an important factor, <laughs> yeah, we may not solve a lot of these issues. I, tough tough uh you know tough statements to get into toward the end of the show you know and <laughs> don't really want to go down that path because we spent an hour on it a couple weeks ago but i, I think it's an ongoing ongoing theme i've seen this as a consultant in the iq industry for 33 years it does seem like there's a disproportionate uh amount of poor indoor air quality factors occurring in the underserved communities mm-hmm. it just right it, it more so well and i guess if you want to put you know and that discussion on a slightly more hopeful note, you know, one of the takeaways and one of my messages is like, we have the knowledge now to build healthier indoor environments for everyone. Like it's not a matter of not knowing how to do it. So like if we decide it's something we want to do, it's like within our power to achieve that. So um, we can get there if we decide that that's important to us. So what would be, um, you know, we always do this at the end and ask and ask the final closing question for you. What would be the one, you know, one or maybe two, a limit of two um, outcomes that you would like to see achieved by your book? You know, this is like, I mean, you put this book together and it's out there for a reason, right? It wasn't just to sell books. It looks more like a passion project to me. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, that's sort of at the broadest level. I guess I just want people to think a little bit more critically about their indoor spaces. You know, I think that's one of the ironies, which is that we spend so much time indoors, you know, 90% of our time indoors. But in some ways, these spaces are kind of unknown to us because I think they've become so familiar that we sort of overlook their complexity and their importance. Um, They don't interest us because we think we know them like the back of our hand. Um, So I guess I'd like people to sort of appreciate how much is is going on in these environments and to sort of think think critically about them. Um, And then I guess, you know, if people come away with one or two things they can put into practice in their own lives, whether that's getting a few houseplants or opening the kitchen window when they're cooking or, um, you know, figuring out how to create a home office space where they feel they can get stuff done. Um, if people find like one takeaway they can improve their own lives with, um, I would be happy about that. That's a pretty no. That's a pretty noble uh, point there. <laughs> um, this was great. I, I wish we had another hour to be honest. Yes, <laughs> we, we can come we, back. Well, I, I, you may have to because unfortunately, <laughs> in sixty minutes, we always uh, scratch the surface and then realize that we've uh, not covered as many topics as we like to cover. But um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule um, and uh, coming on with us at the Healthy Indoors show today. So I, again, like to thank Emily Anthes. Uh, she's the author, again, of The Great Indoors, um, book just recently released last month. Um, and I highly recommend you grab a copy of this. So uh, with that, um, we will return next Thursday, um, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time for the Healthy Indoors Show. So uh, on behalf of my guest, Emily, and uh, for the Healthy Indoors Show and Healthy Indoors Magazine, I'm Bob Krell. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.